Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thought out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low-priced meat. So ButcherBox does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with ButcherBox, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. <laughs> I love ButcherBox and I think other people would too. ButcherBox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated, customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer, plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. If you're listening to this show, then I'm going to guess you're a fan of True Crime Podcasts. So in the mornings, grab your favorite mug and pour yourself a dose of spine-tingling true crime every a.m. with Morning Cup of Murder. It's a short daily show that's the perfect podcast to incorporate into your morning routine. In less than 15 minutes, you'll hear about a true crime that took place on today's date in history. Each day's dark history lesson will kickstart your morning with intriguing tales of murder, abduction, serial killers, cults, and more. So pour yourself a piping hot cup of murder every single morning with Morning Cup of Murder. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a story that, at least in the United States, you've heard a hundred times before. Two teenage boys are playing with a gun that's been stolen from a father's nightstand. The gun goes off and one of the boys is killed. A tragedy, but an all too common one. And at first, that's what was believed to have happened to 15-year-old Brian Bowling. It was October of 1996. Brian and his best friend were hanging out in his bedroom when, as the friend would tell police later that night, the boys got the idea to play Russian roulette. The police heard how Brian had loaded a single round into a 38 revolver, spun the cylinder, held the gun to his head, and pulled the trigger. This particular revolver had five chambers which meant there would have been an 80% chance that Brian would win the game and nothing would happen. But something did happen. A bullet was fired, Brian was shot in the head, and he died the next day. What seemed at first to have been a tragic self-inflicted accident soon became something much more complicated though. Within a few days, that accident had become instead a reckless homicide. And then within a few months, that reckless homicide had become a murder conspiracy. Two teenagers, Kane Joshua Story and Daryl Lee Clark, were sentenced to life in prison for their role in the death of Brian Bowling. They're still there today. According to the investigators and prosecutors who brought the case to trial, 
This is a story about a group of teenagers who plotted to murder their friend and almost got away with it. But according to the teenagers accused of this crime, this is a story about how investigators who were determined to get a conviction were able to conjure up evidence that transformed an accident into a conspiracy. So what really happened to Brian Bowling 25 years ago? And if it wasn't an accident, who was really responsible for his death? This season on Proof. Dallas Battles wanted both of these guys. He wanted both of these boys. He's just a dirty, dirty cop. He put two boys and ruined their life and put them in prison. That's rough right there. They dug his casket up to get this picture out there that one of Kane's buddies had put in there. And it said if a brother's caught knocking on another brother, the punishment's death. They were scared of death of me. He thought Lee was going to come and kill him. The whole house is empty. You can see through the front window. I'll go knock. It can't hurt to knock, right? last words, but. When I found out they were accusing Kane and Lee of it, I was really shocked. They were like, how did world Lee do it? Lee couldn't have did it, he was with us. I don't feel like Josh had the malice in him to just cold blood and kill him. Would you ever wonder if it was an accident? It's part of me that wants to believe that it was an accident. It's just. It's been controversial. What do you mean? Well, they still want to say it's a Russian roulette. I guess it's whatever side you want to believe. Hi, my name is Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney and also a podcaster. I previously hosted the Undisclosed Podcast, where, along with my co-host, we covered wrongful convictions around the United States and reinvestigated cases to uncover new evidence and to find out how and why the criminal justice system had gotten things wrong. Hi, my name is Jacinda Davis, and I'm a true crime TV producer. If you watch ID, you've probably seen some of my work on shows like Evil Lives Here, Shattered, and Killer in Question. Usually I stay invisible behind the camera, so this is new but exciting territory for me. On this season of Proof, you'll also hear from Kevin Fitzpatrick, president of Red Marble Media, who joined us on the road from time to time and Dan, the cameraman, who followed us around as we crisscrossed the foothills of northern Georgia. Susan and I began working together in 2020 on the Jeff Titus case out of Kalamazoo, Michigan. Titus was convicted of shooting and killing two hunters on opening day of deer season back in 1990. If you don't know that story, you can listen to it on the Undisclosed podcast or watch Killer in Question, The Hunt It, streaming on Discovery+. Plus. While we were working together on the Titus case, we started talking about the Brian Bowling case, a case from Floyd County, Georgia, and we decided to team up to try something new, a show that's a collaboration between a podcaster and a TV producer. You can listen to this show like you would any podcast. And you can follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. In Season 2 of the Undisclosed Podcast, we covered the case of Joey Watkins. He was another teenager who was convicted of murder in Floyd County, Georgia. 
It was Joey who first told me about the Brian Bowling case and introduced me to Daryl Lee Clark. This is a prepaid collect call from... To accept charges, press 1. Thank you for using Securus. Hello? Hi, Lee. Hey, Susan. Lee Clark told me about his friend Brian, about the investigation into Brian's death, and how he and his co-defendant, Kane Joshua Story, had ended up in prison serving life sentences for conspiracy to commit murder. How in the hell did I wind up in here? What did I do? I asked myself that all the time, Susan. I said, what did I ever do in this life that was so bad that I wound up in here for something I didn't do? When Susan and I first started digging into this case, one of the first things we did was request the trial transcripts from the Floyd County Courthouse. The initial response from the court clerk was not encouraging. Sorry, we were told. We can't find the transcripts for that case. Eventually, we would start to get records, some of them anyway. But at the beginning, the only way we had of learning more about what happened to Brian Bowling was by talking to the people whose lives had been impacted by his death. That's why, last year, we traveled down to the tiny rural community of Silver Creek in Floyd County, Georgia. So we're here with Amanda. Do you go by Mandy or Amanda? My family calls me Mandy. So either or, Amanda, Mandy, either or. And you are Brian's sister. I'm his sister. How old were you? I was 17. Just turned 17 in August. So you and Brian were pretty close in age. Yeah. You're older, but... 21 months apart. Yeah, so you're almost peers. Yeah. We were very, very close. Very close. It was like whenever he died, there was a part of me that died. Brian's sister, Amanda, still lives in Silver Creek today. Actually, she lives just next door to the trailer where her brother died all those years ago. In the years since, Amanda has done her best to keep her brother's memory alive. Every year, on the anniversary of his death, she posts heartfelt tributes on social media, reminding people in the community about her family's loss. Do you talk about Brian a lot? I do. I do. I, I, seem like, I feel like I have to, because I don't want to forget about him, yeah. <laughs> which I know I never will, but, you know, I have forgotten what his voice sounded like. I have. Mm forgotten that. Seems like a lot of people haven't wanted to talk about this case over the years. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people hush-hush about it, and now I, you know, people ask me, yeah, what do do you want to know? You know, I'll tell you everything I know, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't mind sharing the story. I like to, you know, it helps me. Susan, it's no secret that I have been taking Nutrafol and loving it for a few months now. Susan, have you gotten your Nutrafol yet? I finally did. I'm on the Nutrafol train and I'm really excited because, not going to lie, my hair's been a hot mess this whole season. I think this season has impacted both of our hair in not great ways. Our sanity, our health, and definitely like like ripping hair out in frustration sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But thankfully, Nutrafol is there to help. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology. Take the hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. 
Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code PROOF. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com. Promo code PROOF. That's Nutrafol.com. Promo code PROOF. One thing we do a lot while investigating is sign up for newspapers. Local papers all over the country try and track down some scrap of info from, I don't know, the random 2007 edition of the Memphis paper, just for hypothetical example. <laughs> hypothetical. But the problem is we always forget to cancel those subscriptions. Luckily, there's a solution for people like us who sometimes lose track of things, and that's Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, you get full control over your subscriptions and a clear view of your expenses. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. That's amazing. That's, that's all I want in life, is for someone to always deal with customer service for me. It's like having a personal assistant. Rocket Money has over 5 billion users and has saved them over $500 billion, and saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash proof. That's rocketmoney.com slash proof. Rocketmoney.com slash proof. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For the most part, this is a case that Floyd County has forgotten. Although, even back in 1996, when Brian died, and in 1998, when the trial occurred, it didn't get much attention then, either. I was kind of surprised no one's ever, there, there hasn't really been any coverage. No, not really. They was um, Channel 2 come and, you know, covered just a little story of it, but that was it, you know. Back at the time? Yeah. We showed the news segment from Channel 2 to Amanda. It was the first time she'd seen it in 25 years. Josh is free on bond. The mother of the victim. Josh was screaming, I didn't mean to kill him. And then it, he said he shot himself. These two best friends, teenagers, listening to ear-splitting music in the back bedroom of this home. The victim's mother and other family members in their Rome home, they hear a pop. The mother thinks the stereo speakers have burst. She goes to see what's happened. And when I got in there, instead of speakers being burst, my son was dead. Is that the one you remember saying? Yeah. That's the only one that I think that was ever... Oh, are you okay? Yeah, yeah I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> it just brings back memories, you know, probably some that I had tucked away, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Who was there in the video that you saw? That was uh, my mom, my dad, 
my husband went to. He was my boyfriend at the time. He's my husband. We've been married 25 years now. Initially, everyone thought that Brian's death had been a tragic but self-inflicted accident. That all changed two days after the shooting. Shot in the head, 15-year-old Brian Bowling. His best friend, 17-year-old Josh Story, first told police they were playing Russian roulette, that Brian shot himself. Then Josh changed his tail, says he, Josh, had the gun, and it went off accidentally. This was his best friend. He trusted him with his life, and he took his life. You may have noticed that Daryl Lee Clark is not mentioned at all in this new segment. That's because, at first, there was only one teenager arrested in this case, Brian's friend Josh, who everyone agrees was with Brian in his bedroom when Brian was shot. Josh's full name is Kane Joshua Story. To make things just a little more confusing in this case, you're going to hear him referred to by both his first and middle names. To Brian Bowling and his family, Josh was Josh. But to his parents and to some of his other friends, he was known as Kane. Which is why Susan and I go back and forth on calling him Kane or Josh, depending on who we're talking to. Just remember that whenever you hear someone talking about Josh or Kane, they're talking about the same person. So how long had Josh and uh, Brian been friends? At least 10 plus. So their whole life, basically. Whole life, yeah. Yeah, basically their whole life. The Bowling family lived in a double wide off of Creighton Road, just behind an old cemetery connected to Pleasant Hope Church. Josh slash Kane lived with his family on the other side of the cemetery, just a short walk away from where Brian lived. The boys were always going back and forth between each other's houses, and at times, Josh would even live with the Bowlings. Brian's Aunt Melody recalls how close Josh had been with Brian's entire family. You know, his parents, I think, would kick him out when he'd get in a little bit of trouble and he'd stay at my sister's house. And, I mean, he stayed there weeks on end. So they loved him. He was and a he family. Loved him. Yeah. We asked Brian's sister, Amanda, and her husband, Kenneth, to walk us through what happened that day on October 18, 1996. They both remember Brian getting back home around 8 or 9 p.m. that night after spending the day doing odd jobs with family friends Wayne and Charlie Childers. Wayne and Charlie, their family, they cut all the cemeteries around this area. They lived across the street from the store, Silver Creek Mini Mart, and my Nana and Papa lived beside the store. Mm. So they've known us our whole entire life. So he's out cutting grass somewhere around here mm-hmm. and with the childers, and then all mm-hmm. three of them come back to your place? Yes, yeah, all three of them come in and sit down. We was watching Harry and the Hendersons, I'll never forget that on TV. Um, the telephone rung, and it was this little girl named Caprice which was supposed to have been his girlfriend at the time. Called him, got him on the phone. He went to his bedroom. So that night at the bowling residence, there were seven people. There was Rocky and Deborah Bowling, that's Brian's mom and dad, his sister Amanda, and her then boyfriend, now husband, Kenneth, and Wayne and Charlie Childers, the family friends of the Bullings who Brian had been working with that day. 
They were all in the living room watching TV, except for Brian, who had grabbed the cordless phone and had gone back to his bedroom to talk to his girlfriend, 15-year-old Caprice Hyatt. It was a little later on that night, around 9.30, when Josh slash Kane showed up at the bowling's house, and he did something that Amanda and Kenneth found to be very strange. He knocked on the front door. We've lived here forever, 10 years. You know, they were best friends forever. He's never once knocked on our door. He knocked on our door that night. And he never knocked on the door. He knocked on the door and Mama said, come on in, son, you know. So he said, is Brian here? Brian in his room? Mama said, yeah. So he walked on around through the kitchen, through the dining room, went to Brian's room. I looked at my husband, my boyfriend, husband, I say husband because he's my husband now. Josh never knocked. Josh knew he was welcome there. He never knocked. He knocked that night and they asked, where's Brian, you know, and he never, never done any of that. There was a lot about Josh's behavior that night that, at least in hindsight, Kenneth and Amanda had found to be suspicious. Something just wasn't right. We knew him, you know, because he usually just comes in and just, Oh, just because he was tall, you know, just being his goofy self, you know, talking to mama, messing with daddy, messing with us, and there's nothing like that that night. Come in, head down, Brian in his room. Josh headed back to Brian's bedroom, and Brian's family assumed that the two of them were just hanging out and listening to music like usual. He had a radio playing. Um, it was playing Bone, Thugs and Harmony. <laughs> That's what we all listened to back then, the 90s. The song playing in Brian's bedroom that night was Bone Thugs and Harmony's 1996 hit single, The Crossroads. Brian's aunt and uncle recall Brian's mother, Deborah Bowling, telling them about it. That's what she had told me at the time, you know, is when Josh came in, that as soon as he went to the bedroom, they turned Bone Thug and Harmony on. And this song was kind of Brian's song and all of them just kind of, I guess that was their little anthem thing. I don't know. I even had to dig up the words to the song for the investigators. A few minutes after Josh arrived, a loud noise reverberated through the trailer. It was loud enough to be heard over the sound of the crossroads playing through Brian's speakers. And we heard a real loud thud. I don't think it was the gunshot that we heard. I think what we heard was him hitting the floor because it was just a loud thud. So I opened up the door and me and Kenneth were the first ones in the room and Brian was laying in the floor. And I reached down and I said, Brian, I said, get up, you know, because I thought he was playing. And then I reached down and I seen the blood and everything. And then I, I knew. And then Kenneth, he just pushed me out the way, basically what he did, and grabbed a towel. Brian's family quickly realized that Brian had been shot in the head. The gun was between Brian's feet. Josh was backed up in the corner. He was laying on his right side. Like he had, he was sitting on his bed like he had just fell off his bed. He had the phone in his right hand. Mama had to break his fingers to get the phone to call 911. Josh kept trying to get out. 
he first said, well, he was playing Russian roulette and the gun just went off. And then he said, he accidentally shot himself. And then he said, I didn't mean to kill him. And he just kept saying, I didn't mean to kill him. I didn't mean to kill him. You said you consoled Josh. I did. And he said it was an accident and I hugged him. I said, it's okay, Josh, we'll figure this out. And I hugged him. And you believed that? And I believed, yeah, yeah. I mean, never thought anything like that could ever happen to us. Kenneth and Amanda say that 25 years later, their memories are sometimes fuzzy. Some of it they still remember clear as day. They can still see it like it was yesterday. But other parts of that night they struggle to recall. They both wish there were better records from the night of the shooting. It's been so long. Mm -hmm. I wish, you know, I wish the police would have got an interview of us that night or later that week. Because if we could have, if we could have been interviewed then, you could have got all your answers, you know. But now, 25 years later, it's it's a lie. Then we all should have been taken to the police station or taken in the room, interviewed by ourselves to get all of our stories, you know, and go from there. But there's no telling what I blocked out from then till now that I could have told them that night. No one's memory is going to be accurate now compared to what it would have been. It's just not ever going to happen. As far as we can tell, the very first time that Amanda and Kenneth ever gave a statement in this case wasn't until 14 months after the shooting, during their testimony at Josh and Lee's trial in 1998. Amanda suggested that we try speaking to her uncle Michael, her mom's brother. She said he had a good memory and thought there might be a lot that he'd be able to remember. Michael's name was new to us. It doesn't appear in the case file. And before talking to Amanda, Susan and I had no reason to think that he might be someone that had any relevant information about what happened that night. I was actually at home. It was a Friday night, to the best of my knowledge, around 8.35 p.m. I got a call. It was my mother screaming, uh, Brian shot himself. Go down there. Brian shot himself. Go down there. And I was saying how bad. She was like, just go down there. We lived like two houses away, so I just took off down there. Uh, I was the first one there before any paramedics or anything. Uh, I headed toward the door. Uh, actually, Josh, as we call him, instead of Kane. Uh, met me at the door saying, uh, I didn't mean to kill him, Michael. I didn't mean to kill him. And that kind of like dumbfounded me because I was thinking he probably shot himself in the foot or hand or something like that. So I just kind of pushed around him and went straight to the bedroom and Josh was kind of behind me. Uh, Wayne and Charlie Childers were in the house. Uh, they were kind of standing back in the dining room area, uh, just watching what was going on. While I was in there, Deborah was trying to do CPR. Okay. Right. So they're trying to stop the bleeding, and yeah, she had his head laying on a pillow, trying to, you know, trying to stop the bleeding. Oh, she had him on a pillow on, on up a blue there. Pillow. Okay. Yes. Josh did come to the door. Uh, he told me they need the gun. The gun was laying at the foot of Brian at that time, and I turned around, it's like, who is they? Who is they? Who is they? Because EMTs wasn't even there yet, or policemen. Uh, He said, they all need the gun. They need the gun. Give me the gun. And I'm like, no, you're not getting the gun. Like several other witnesses who were there at the trailer that night, Brian's uncle Michael recalls hearing Josh make a series of confusing statements that, at least later on, after Josh's arrest, they find to be potentially incriminating. So at this time, you're 
not sure what's happening. You're suspicious of, of Josh, but you're not really. Right. I'm not really for sure because, you know, like I said, he said, you know, he was telling police afterwards that it was a Russian roulette and uh, that he felt like he was responsible for it because it was his gun. So he tells them right away, it was my gun. I yes. brought it. Well, not his gun, but. Yes, yeah, that he brought the gun. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. There are no records of any witness interviews the police conducted at the trailer that night, assuming that they conducted any at all. But later on, at the trial... Witnesses would testify to hearing Josh say things like, I didn't mean to kill him, and I didn't mean for my best friend to die, as well as things like, he shot himself, and we were playing Russian roulette. Josh does admit right away that he brought the gun. He had taken it from his dad's safe. But any suspicions about what Josh may have meant by the statements he made that night would come later. In the moment, everyone's concern was focused on getting Brian help. When the paramedics arrived, Brian was still breathing, and he was transported to the hospital with his family following close behind. 
all I could think about was, oh, my God. Oh, my God. We got to get him. We got to get him out of here. You know, we got to get him to the hospital. You know, please don't let him die. Because I was thinking that he was going to be okay. Once at the hospital, a CAT scan revealed just how severe Brian's injury had been. In the scans, the wound track shows up as a vivid white slash through his head, starting just above his right temple and traveling all the way through his brain to exit on the other side, just above his left ear. All I remember is when I walked in that hospital room, that wasn't my brother laying there. They had his head all wrapped up. His eyes were black. They swelled, you know. And it just, I couldn't even go up to him. All I could do is just stand at his feet and rub his feet. I mean, it's haunted me. It haunted me for years. Years and years. On Saturday, October 19th, 1996, Brian Bowling was pronounced dead. The next day, a story about the shooting runs in the Rome News Tribune. Under the headline, Russian Roulette Proves Fatal for High School Student. The Floyd County Police Department is quoted in the article as stating that they consider the shooting to be accidental and that no charges will be filed. But Brian's Aunt Melody thinks investigators are too quick to call it a closed case. So at the very beginning, you get the sense that they're just, they jumped. They just, yeah, they just took Josh's word for it and, you know, poor kid, played Russian roulette and he lost. I was going to ask, like, what did they, tell, did they tell you why they thought it was Russian roulette? Just because that's what Josh said. At first, the police don't think there's anything more to investigate. But in the days after Brian's death, Brian's family has more time to think back on what happened. And to them, things don't quite add up. Brian's sister, Amanda, says she never believed the Russian roulette story. So Josh says that they were playing Russian roulette and you believe him? Mm-mm. You don't? Mm-mm. Okay, so you're not... Because I knew my brother. So, Brian would never put no gun to his head and pull the trigger. <laughs> so he says he played Russian roulette. I say, no, that's not true. So what do you think? Why do you think Josh would tell you that? I don't know. Because, you know, he said a lot of things that night. But I knew something just wasn't right. Because we was like, no, Russian roulette. We was like, no. You know. Brian's family doubted the Russian roulette story because they did not believe that Brian would ever have done something so reckless. But there's another reason, too, that Kenneth and Amanda say the Russian roulette story didn't make sense to them. Josh wasn't in there long enough to be playing. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, no Russian roulette. It went from him walking in the door to going straight to the room to us getting up, us getting up and going in there. It wasn't, it wasn't even five minutes. So you know, I mean, what are you gonna do? Just walk in and say, "Hey, let's play Russian roulette." You know, I mean, even though one way or another. It was because Josh brought the gun to the trailer that night that Brian ended up dead. Brian's family isn't blaming Josh for what happened. From all appearances, Josh is deeply grieving his friend's death. Brian's Aunt Melody remembers that Josh even joined Brian's family in helping to plan for his funeral. You know, was next day, oh, you know, he's there at the house. and um, Josh is at the house? Oh, yeah, he was at, our, at my mom's house where okay. everybody was gathering because Deborah's house was... Yeah. Uh, a wreck. And uh, he was there, and oh, he wanted to play his guitar and sing at the funeral and all this stuff. And Deborah was just, you know, so glad. Because the Floyd County Police Department believes that Brian's death is an accident, 
their initial investigation was routine at best. On the night of the shooting, the police take Josh from the Bowling's trailer to the Floyd County Police Department. There, they swab his hands to test for the presence of gunshot residue and question him about what happened to Brian. He tells them Brian was playing Russian roulette when he died. We don't know what exactly Josh tells them about whose idea it was to play Russian roulette. This interview was not recorded, and there's no formal report or any record made to document it. The only reason we know this interview took place is because both Josh and the investigating officer say it did. But whatever it is he tells them, the police accept it. Brian's Aunt Melody is unimpressed by the way the Floyd County Police Department is handling the case. She makes sure that the two investigators assigned to it take her concerns seriously. So your first impression of the investigators, do you remember who it was by any chance? David Stewart and Dallas Battle. They were, we all became good friends. Yeah. They worked hard after they realized it was not going to be open and shut. But then after... They met me. (laughs) They met me. And uh, I was just like, that's not good enough, you know. I was asking them questions, and so they knew, you know, "Mm, we got to go back and do a little more. Right, they knew you were thinking something Mm -hmm. different. David, I know, is, I know he's alive. We Um, we stopped by. not. Yeah. Yeah. We, we talked to David, mm-hmm. um, but Dallas, obviously, we can't. Right, right. He passed away. I think March. Back in March, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, they worked hard on it after, you know, they realized that this was not your typical, you know, Russian, or it wasn't an open and shut case. Aunt Melody says that there was a crucial detail about the crime scene that investigators Dallas Battle and David Stewart had overlooked. Although the police don't document any witness interviews in the first 48 hours after the shooting, we know there was at least one member of Brian's family who the police talked to at the hospital shortly after the shooting. That's Brian's mother, Deborah Bowling. According to Melody, when the police speak to her sister, she points out a detail that complicates what the police have been treating as an open and shut case. Brian was on the phone with his girlfriend. My sister pretty much broke his fingers to get the phone out of his hand to call 911. So if you got a phone in your hand, why would you play Russian roulette and do this and come out here? When we spoke to Melody, she demonstrated the problem to us, pointing out where Brian had been shot in the right side of his head. According to his mother, Deborah Bowling, when she had found him lying on the floor of his bedroom, he'd been gripping the cordless telephone in his right hand. And if Brian had been clutching the phone in his right hand when he was shot, there's no possible way he could have fired the revolver into the right side of his head, too. And the detectives, they were just like, oh, it's Russian roulette. That's what they said. I'm like, no, let's go back to the drawing board. So they talked to Josh again. At trial, Sergeant Dallas Battle testified that two days after the shooting, he made a trip to the funeral home with the county coroner to inspect Brian's body. And something about what he saw there at the funeral home, what exactly it is he doesn't say, caused him to change his mind about how Brian was killed. He no longer believes that the gunshot had been self-inflicted. That's when he makes the decision to bring Kane Joshua's story in for a second interview. It's during this second interview that Josh says something that changes the course of the entire investigation. During Josh's second interview, Sergeant Dallas Battle tells him that he knows Josh is the one who shot Brian. You didn't shoot Brian on purpose, Sergeant Battle assures him. 
It was an accident, wasn't it? Nobody said you'd done anything on purpose. And at first, Josh continues to insist that Brian had shot himself, that Brian had been the one to hold the revolver to his head and fire it. But eventually, Josh changes his story. Josh still insists that Brian had been playing Russian roulette, but at Sergeant Battle's urging, he acknowledges that he'd gotten the revolver back from Brian. It went off and accidentally hit him, Josh says. I saw Brian hit the floor, and the gun fell out of my hand. Josh was charged with involuntary manslaughter and booked into the county jail. Brian's uncle Michael remembers when Brian's mother received the news that Josh had been arrested for killing her son. Oh, she was screaming, kind of breaking down, you know. So, Like I said, she had called the funeral home and told them to hold off on everything. And uh, like she didn't want his name in the papers being a pallbearer or anything like that. Because she was even going to let Josh sing at Brian's funeral. So that night... And be a pallbearer and so forth. Because yeah. I remember having to call the funeral home, like, hold all of my arrangements, you know. So at that time, when they tell her that Josh has said he did it, mm-hmm. but uh, are they saying he did? He said it was an accident at that point? They just said that they had charged Josh and uh, that the evidence showed that he did it. I don't know if they told her exactly that he admitted it. And were you surprised when you heard that? We were completely surprised. Yeah. Was there any, at that point, did any other names come up, or was it just Josh? At that time, it was just Josh. The day after his arrest for involuntary manslaughter, Josh, slash Kane, is released on bond. He remains free for the next seven months. Then, seven months later, in May of 1997, he is arrested again. This time, the charges are upgraded to first-degree murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. And Josh is not the only one charged for Brian's death. Another teenager is arrested as well, 17-year-old Daryl Lee Clark. Me and Brian were good friends. I mean, we weren't best friends, but we were friends. I hated what happened to him. I hated to hear it. It hurt me when I heard about it. It did. Him and Kane were a lot closer than we were, but I had some good times with him. On the afternoon of May 23, 1997, More than seven months after Brian's death, Lee had been preparing to go to the lake with some friends. Just before heading out, though, he stopped by his mom's house. And that's when my mama comes out and tells me that the police had been by there with a warrant for my arrest for conspiracy to commit murder and murder. Ain't no mistake, she said it went by your daddy's place, too. Lee's parents drove him down to the Floyd County Police Department to try and figure out what was going on. All the way when I even got down to the county jail down there and went in there to tell the lady, I told her, I said, look, there's clearly been some kind of mistake made. There's a warrant issued for my arrest for conspiracy to commit murder. I said, I know I haven't did anything like this. I said, I don't even know anybody just did. By the time a warrant was issued for his arrest, Brian's death was not even on Lee's mind. It did not occur to him that he was being accused of murdering Brian. In fact, he says... He didn't think he was really being charged with murder at all. He assumed the whole thing must have been some kind of huge mistake. I said, I would really like to get this straightened out. Well, it didn't nothing get straightened out. I got drugged to the back, got handcuffed. Dallas Bowers come down there trying to get me to talk to him, acting like I know what was going on. And I told him, I said, look, I said, I don't know why y'all got me down here. 
I said, you're sitting there talking to me like I automatically know what's going on. I said, why don't you tell me what's going on? Then I'll know because I ain't got a clue what you're talking about. Why am I down here? Why are these charges on me? And that's when they hit me with it, talking about, well, we know that you and Kane's story. We know y'all conspired. We know y'all had something to do with Brian Bowling's death and all this. And I told him, I said, oh, hold up, man. I said, I can't even believe you playing this card right here. I said, look, I said, I didn't have nothing to do with any of that. I wasn't even there when Brian killed himself. I said, and to my knowledge, that's exactly what happened. Well, everything I've been told, Brian Bowling killed himself that night. In January of 1998, both Kane's story and Lee Clark went on trial for the murder of Brian Bowling. The prosecutor, Steve Cox, presented a theory that Brian's death had been a gang-related revenge killing. He told the jury that Brian, Kane, and Lee had all been members of a gang called the Freebirds. The Freebirds, he said, had a very specific code of conduct that gang members were required to obey. One of the gang's rules was that any gang member who spoke to the police had to die. And Brian, the prosecutor said, had broken that rule, which is why his fellow gang members had been required to kill him. Prosecutor Steve Cox told the jury that there'd never been a game of Russian roulette. All of that was just a cover story that Lee Clark and Kane's story had come up with in an effort to hide the fact that one of the two boys, either Kane or Lee, had intentionally shot and killed their friend. I was curious, did Steve Cox commit to like a theory? Did he say like what he thought had happened? Like what was the... I don't know if, I don't think Steve ever said one or the other did it. Right. You know, cause only, only one of them could do it. Um, so I don't think he was trying to settle on getting one prosecuted and one not, or one found guilty and one not. But he didn't like say that which one definitely did the shooting. He I was... don't think so, no. Okay. Brian's family got the verdict they'd been hoping for, but there was a lot about the case that was left unanswered. We called Kevin back at the office to tell him what we'd learned. They were both ultimately convicted of conspiracy to okay. commit murder. Yeah. Which, which means that the jury didn't have to determine if anyone of them had pulled the trigger. Yep. So just that they had planned the murder and seen that it was carried out, basically. Because the investigation never came up with an answer about how exactly Brian had been killed, Brian's family has been left to fill in the gaps with their own theories, all of which involve Lee being outside Brian's bedroom window the night he was shot. My thoughts were Lee probably shot him and Josh had to lure him to sit in the bedroom, but I think the shooter was Lee. Brian had a window and Brian's window flopped in and out, so I think he would leave home, come back through the window, but that night, that window was the some kind of wood or something was off. Um, so the kicker is why I believe Lee shot him is Brian had been cutting grass with two of our neighbors, Wayne and Charlie Childers. So they were there still at the house when they brought Brian home. And um, when Brian was shot, everybody jumped up and ran to the bedroom. Charlie didn't hear it. So he sat there and he saw Lee come across the front yard. There's a street light and he had never seen this kid before and he picked him out. And you feel like that was like 
I feel the like smoking gun in the trial. Yes, I do. What do you guys think happened that night? What's your your idea, your theory? I don't know. I just don't. I, I really and truly don't don't think that Brian would be sitting there playing with a gun and knowing knowing that it could end his life. I just don't believe that. I don't. I don't believe that at all. I think Josh was there. I think Lee was there to make sure that Josh did it, or. He could have told him, you know, one of you's gonna die. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I feel confused now, you know. But I mean, one of them took my brother's life. I do know that because I know my brother didn't do it. I mean, and one is just as guilty as the other because it's both there. What's your understanding of what went down? I do feel in my heart that Josh pulled the trigger. Like I said, due to him meeting me at the door, you know, saying I didn't mean to kill him, Michael, I didn't mean to kill him. So I feel in my heart, you know, that he really was the trigger guy. Uh, I kind of feel that Lee was there too as well. He was probably either halfway in the room or in the room and that he kind of talked him into it or forced him into it really, you know, by threatening him, so. By threatening the, Josh. By threatening Josh. To me, Josh wouldn't have never done it completely on his own because they were too good of friends. So. Because this was a conspiracy case, the jury was able to find beyond a reasonable doubt that Lee and Kane were both guilty of killing Brian, even if they had no clue which one of them had actually fired the shot. It's this uncertainty about who actually killed Brian, or if Brian really did shoot himself, that caught our attention about the case. If the prosecution is right, then Kane Story and Lee Clark orchestrated a complicated murder conspiracy to kill their best friend. As Susan and I start looking into this case, we had a lot of questions about the prosecution's narrative. So the other thing that doesn't make sense about their theory is that if it was a big planned murder, that Kane would admit to doing it moments later. Like, if the plan was that we're going to stick to our story, it's Russian roulette, he killed himself, why would he start admitting to it? So the idea is that it's a conspiracy for murder. Kane distracts Brian. Lee comes in the window and kills him. And then immediately after, Kane is like, I killed him. I did which, it. I did which, it. Which, one, you didn't under this scenario. And two, why admit to it? And also, in, in her testimony, Brian's mom makes it clear that that's not a confession. That's a... At best, like a admission of guilt for bringing the gun. Right. And he has said he feels guilty he for does. bringing the gun. In his letter to me, he's like, he, you know, described what happened and said, if that's a crime, I'm guilty. But if it's not, I'm not guilty of what they said I did. Brian's Aunt Melody was not called as a witness in this case. So she was one of the few members of Brian's family that was able to sit in the courtroom and watch the trial. And as she sat through the seven days of testimony, she began to lose confidence in the case that the prosecution had put together. There were just so many holes in the investigation, you know. But a jury evidently felt like that they should be convicted. And I mean, I felt like they did 
need to be convicted, but I was very surprised that they were. It wasn't just Brian's family that was surprised by the verdict. Lee Clark had not been expecting it either. Did you think you were going to be convicted? Me? Yeah. No, no, I'd never seen this coming in a thousand years. I sit in that courtroom and I swore up and down. I, I was going back and forth to court and I was telling these guys in the jail with me, I said, these people are up there lying. I said, they know they're lying. They got to know they're lying. I said, hey, this jury is sitting in there listening to the stuff I'm listening to. If they're opening their eyes and they're listening properly right here and listening to the truth, I'm going home, man. I said, no, I ain't supposed to be here, man. That's what I was telling them, but uh, it didn't work out like it. As of this past January, both Kane Story and Lee Clark have now been in prison for 24 years, serving life sentences. For a crime both of them say they did not commit a crime that they say never even happened. Lee has always maintained his innocence, and for the most part, Kane has too, except for during his second interview with Sergeant Dallas Battle, when he admitted that the gun had been in his hand when it accidentally went off and shot Brian. But Kane recanted that confession immediately after the interview, and at trial, Kane testified in his own defense, and gave the same story he'd given the night that this all happened, that Brian had shot himself during a game of Russian roulette. Kane says he told them when they got there that he shot himself, what he told me. That's what Kane's told you, that he shot himself? He said that he shot himself, is what he said he told the police. Have you ever wondered if maybe it didn't go down that way? So I've been to three prisons with Kane's story, over this while my incarceration, three of them. And I told him, I said, something went down in that house, man. If something went down in his room, man, I said, go ahead and tell me, man. The least you can do is if you did do something, tell me. And he swears something down to me that that boy killed himself. And he's never wavered on that with me one time. He's always told me that that boy killed himself. So how did a case that began as an accidental, self-inflicted shooting end up with two teenagers serving life in prison? I get confused with this stuff, Susan. I don't know any of this stuff. I'm just a backwoods country boy. I'm stuck here. I'm trying to figure stuff out, and uh, it's hard for me to put put it together. I mean, I the only thing I know for a fact is I wasn't at that boy's house. And the truth be known, we just go ahead and put it out there like it is. So the truth be known, I really don't know what happened in that house. Lee Clark asked if I'd look into the case to try and find out what had happened here, to find out how Brian had died and what the evidence was against him and his co-defendant. I mean, it, it's ridiculous to, the stuff you have to go through just to get the real truth out there. That's why, I, that's why I buried my soul to you. That's why I've been completely honest with you about everything. I've not hid anything from you. I don't have anything to hide. But I got a past. I got a rough past. Okay, I'm not a murderer. I didn't kill anybody. If there's one thing that all the people who've been affected by this case agree on, it's this. We still don't know the truth about what happened to Brian Bowling. No one has gotten any real answers about what happened that night 25 years ago. But maybe, just maybe, with a fresh set of eyes looking at the case, some answers can still be found. Next week on Proof. I think the reason why they come up with the plan of killing Brian was because of, they thought Brian was talking. But Brian wasn't talking. Brian didn't say a word about nothing. Do you think Brian was in a gang? I'm sure he probably was, yeah. I told him straight up, I said, look, gang. I said, we done stole you, daddy say And now here it is, you got his fucking gun on you. I said, what are you gonna think when he comes home and he sees that gun gone too? 
And me and Brian hid behind some graves, and we seen him come up through there, and you perfectly see who it is, because I mean, it's lit up right there. And, and then Brian hollers out, it's Lee. It's a shame, it's a shame for their families, it's a shame for our family. It's like my sister said, at least you can go see your sons in prison. You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media. We'll be back next Monday for episode two. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Hasuski. And our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production is by Michael Alfano, Adam Goldstein, and Michael Ulitowski. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. Thank you to our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Follow us everywhere with the handle at Proof Crime Pod and on our website, proofcrimepod.com. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>